Hi, this is Bert Sperling, and we've got another team podcast uh, from our crew here, and we're going to talk about climate change. It's a really important topic and one that affects all of us and everyone we know, the entire world, for as long as we can, as long as we can imagine. So let's go ahead and delve into climate change and what it looks like here in the United States. So we've got Al Olson. Al, say howdy. And and Bertrand Sperling. Hi, everyone. And Nick Arnold. Howdy, partners. To tell us all about it. Um, So let's go ahead and get into it. Um, Bertrand, a few years ago, we did a study all about uh, the different hazards of of climates, climate hazards, and people were talking about what scared them the most, what would, what they were most worried about. Can you share what we found out about that? And then we'll get into some of the specific information. I know Nick has a lot of great information, but what are people most concerned about? Sure. Yeah. We did a survey of our users. We, we surveyed over a thousand bestplaces.net member, community members. And these are people that are, uh, are registered for free on our website. And we asked them what uh, natural disaster scared them the most. And um, the most feared natural disaster with, was earthquakes, with 21% of uh, respondents uh, voting for earthquakes. And then um, after that, we had tornadoes at 17.6%. And close behind that, we had wildfires at 16.9% and hurricanes at 16 Then we had flooding at 13%, drought at 12%, and way down at the bottom of the list, uh, with only a handful of votes each, we had wind at 1.3% and hail uh, that got eight votes at uh, 0.7%. Wow, so so people were actually uh, more concerned about wildfires in this survey than hurricanes. That's correct. Yes. Um, very close, though. It was 193 votes for wildfires and 184 for hurricanes. So very, very similar, actually. Numbers. Well, still, I'm, I'm really surprised because we took this a few years ago mm-hmm. when maybe wildfires weren't as much in the news. I'm looking forward to redoing this study, uh, the survey, and then finding out what people are, feel like that now. So one thing I think that's interesting, we talk about climate change we, and the impact it's having on the United States. And we're all about best places. And the opposite side of, of the most dangerous places and the hazardous places, and we're going to get into that, is which places are maybe the safest places coming up in the future and maybe the best places for you and your family to think about if things get a little too hot, figuratively and literally, where you are. So, Nick, you've done a lot of great um uh, research on that. In fact, you have spent your whole life chasing climate and meteorology, and now you're a cartographer. Uh, you're like the perfect person to go ahead and, and share about. It. Why don't you give us a little bit of your background again and tell us what you found? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I, you know, I kind of came by geography and the study of natural hazards and mapping and stuff pretty naturally. I was the the son of a meteorologist who taught in college and actually taught field courses where we would spend a month out in the Great Plains or in the older Tornado Alley at that point in time, you know, the 
sort of classic region, you know, Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, we spend a month every year out there chasing tornadoes and storms, really trying to see, you know, the ones that could produce a tornado. So from a period of about eight to 12 years older, so I was, I was out for a month of, of every single year in theory, looking at tornadoes. And actually every single year we got several, um, lots of footage. We were on news channels, a lot of places. Um, at the time there weren't early warning systems and there still kind of aren't now. <clears throat> so a lot of what we did was just inform the public because somebody's got to go out and see what's going on. I mean, the great thing about the Great Plains is that it's pretty, you know, sparsely populated. So a lot of these storms happen not only is it flat, so you can see for miles and miles, but generally speaking, there aren't a lot of people around. Um, you know, tornadoes don't just all the time happen in downtown Dallas or Fort Worth or Oklahoma City. You know, it doesn't usually happen that way. What's interesting, actually, because considering the risk, a lot of people think that there are these weird concepts or these ideas about where tornadoes can't be. They didn't cross the bend of the river. There's this one thing blocking it because you know, maybe a tornado hit the suburbs of a city, but it didn't hit the city. So there's some reason for that. Um, risk is all about being unlucky, right? You know, you can be really unlucky and be in the wrong place at the wrong time. So when you're thinking about all these hazards, it's important to think about the risks, um, but also think about things that aren't necessarily true. The bends in the river can save you from a tornado, these types of things. And so it's important to evaluate risk as, as sort of a broad kind of concept to see what you're comfortable with. But my expertise in that is really geared a lot more towards the climatic sort of hazards rather than, you know, the uh, the earthquake type hazards. Although we did study that a little bit as well, and I have some some additional insights into that also. Nick, just hold on. Is it actually can the bend of the river or the or whatever can that actually keep a tornado from from going to those places, or is that just folk? <laughs> it's it's pure yeah. luck. It's it's. I lived. In, I grew up in in uh, Muncie, Indiana, and spent a lot of time there. Um, people always had this this concept. There was a tornado that came through the south side of town. It was loosely divided north south by a river, and it happened on the south side of town. And everybody was convinced that there was something about this river that was preventing it from reaching the north side. And it's just you can't control weather. You know, sometimes you just get lucky, and sometimes you get really unlucky. It's just no, not, no, the only no thing you can river. no magic rivers. The only thing you can probably say is that mountains certainly do actually, you know, affect weather, uh, both negatively and positively, depending upon your perspective. It can create storms and it can help to kill storms off. But no, no magic bends, no magic, just luck. <laughs> so, so you're one of the storm chasers. I always imagine these storm chasers, they're, they're saying, there's a tornado. Let's go get it. And then it's like, er, nope, tornado's coming at us. And all, all of a sudden you're, you do a, a 180 and you're running as, as fast as you were driving towards it. The key is knowing where to be and when to be there. Um, one of the things that people don't do anymore that we kind of did early on, but we really just, the risk was too much. We just, we didn't do any nighttime chasing of storms. It's just a little too... You know, you're, you're relying on line of sight. And the big thing as far as safety when you're going out to see severe storms is to be on the proper side of the storm. So you know where it is, where a tornado could form so that you're not in the wrong place at the wrong time. And tornadoes, of course, can't happen anywhere in any storm, right? You can have 
lots of other wind events, which is another one of our risk categories that come out of these storms. But a tornado only happens out of a wall cloud, which only happens out of one area of a storm. Right. Now, you can have huge storm complexes, and there can be many tornadoes, but that's many thunderstorms, right? They all happen in the same place within any given thunderstorm. So it's all about knowing where to be or where not to be. Right. So you've got some, you have done, you, you, you have used your cartographic super skills to uh, get some amazing maps for us and other information to share that exactly shows these areas of, of hazards. So, and a lot of it has to do with climate change. Some of it's just climate and other things like earthquakes, probably not climate change. We might find out later uh, there's something going on there, but tell us what you found there. Yeah, so I'm just going to share my screen here and share with the group what we can uh, take a look at. Um, this first map here I'm just sharing is actually a really interesting conversation. I believe Al has some additional insights because what we're looking at right here is a tornado scoring, right? It's, in this case, what I was trying to do is develop a system for evaluating who gets more tornadoes and who gets less. Well, this is an interesting kind of map because it's very clear that the Western U.S. doesn't have very many tornadoes. Again, mountains can do that. They can kill storms. doesn't mean you can't have them. It's just they're far, far less likely. The same type of thing exists um, in the Eastern U.S. You can see, um, you probably can't see it very well, but there is a block in the Appalachian Mountains that's very dark blue compared to the rest of the Midwest and even some of the southeastern coast there. Again, we're in the mountains, things change with regard to the weather. Doesn't mean you can't get a tornado, but it means that you're far, far less likely. Uh, but this is a really interesting map because you can look at this pattern here and you see, well, there's a lot of red in the middle part of the country and in the south and in the north. That's great. This is showing the reality of tornadoes through a historical perspective. We're looking at tornadoes pretty much as counts to help us facilitate this risk theory here. So you can see Oklahoma is littered with red and hot colors showing there's lots of tornadoes there. There's lots of tornadoes in Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi. The Midwest is much wider than that classic tornado alley I was referring to. There's this historical perspective that Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska, those middle states specifically, that's tornado alley. But the reality is actually that even from a historical perspective, there are more than one classic tornado alley sort of places. And one of those, actually, I've lived in a, quite a few of them. Uh, Mississippi is a really good hotspot. You can see there uh, very loosely on the map. Indiana is another good hotspot where you get a lot of tornadoes. So it's not just that there's this classic tornado alley. The risk from a risk perspective, it's actually much wider than that. The Midwest gets lots and lots of thunderstorms that are fully capable of producing tornadoes. So it's a lot bigger area than a lot of people really realize with respect to risk for tornadoes. So yeah. just for the for the for the layman, um, what's do you and can, if you do your cursor, does that kind of show where your cursor is? Yeah, can you show us where traditional um, tornado alley would be uh, considered, and then um, maybe also identify some places where there's? You said there's also actually technically a, a tornado alley also. So hopefully you can see this nice little red mm -hmm. ellipse I drew on the map there. That is the classic area of Tornado Alley. That's, gotcha. that's really what people are thinking of with respect to the classic term. The reality is that there's more than just that. There's more than that. And historically, we talk about the other two areas that I've outlined here as being 
another sort of secondary and tertiary, if you will, sort of tornado alleys. Again, we're, we're probably speaking more about semantics here. The whole area flat out is at risk. But what's really interesting is a, is a point that Al was bringing up is that this is showing the historical risk as a whole, but there are trends that we can pick out that you might hear about a little bit more in the news. And if Al wants to uh, facilitate a little discussion there, we can talk about how the, again, the classic tornado alley has changed. Yeah, one of, one of the things I've been reading about is that um, because of the, well, weather's affected by the jet stream, and we haven't touched on that, but um, the the events for tornadoes are moving more toward the southeast. And, but that that's not the big story. The bigger story is that the intensity of the storms are much more severe in the southeast than they are in the classic tornado alley. And I don't know if you have any information on that, Nick, or want to touch on that. Yeah, actually, I mean, the chief reason why we see on this map here that you see the scent, the middle of the country, the heartland, if you will, is so um, at risk of tornadoes is because of the basic geography that includes the Gulf of Mexico. To create storms that are really strong, you need lots of heat and you need lots of moisture. And there aren't a lot of places on earth that are better suited than the middle of the United States to get all of the right ingredients to have really super strong storms. Um, and the way this is changing over time, is, as Alice mentioned, is that things have sh the risk has shifted eastward because the availability of moisture is still there. But another risk that we're all kind of familiar with at this point in time is drought, right? We all know that the Southwest is in a big old drought, you know, the the bathtub theory everybody talks about with regard to Lake Mead and Lake Powell about how, you know, you can see the old bathtub ring, how high the water used to be. It's hundreds of feet lower than that now. You know, L.A. and all of Southern California and probably this year, the whole state of California is going to be in a severe, severe, severe crisis for water. That drought is sort of kind of preventing the west side of Tornado Alley from having the you know, the classic amount of available moisture. So you've got drought in the West, you still got that available to the East. So it's kind of natural just for those systems to be more prevalent in the East where that moisture is available and less so where the drought is happening, basically. So uh, isn't, isn't the Gulf of Mexico, uh, the temperature of the Gulf of Mexico, the waters themselves rising, which not only um, would precipitate the... Uh, rise of tornadoes but hurricanes in that area as well yeah sea level rise is a problem and if you've ever been to the gulf of mexico before you know it's already like bath water um, it's extremely warm you can be in miami on the atlantic coast and you can be a little cold in the water and you go to the west side over to the gulf of mexico and you can be just playing around splashing around in 85 degree water 90 degree water all day long it's 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 there it's available and the atmosphere sure loves it and the hotter it is, the more that moisture likes to get up into the air and be available, you know, to create thunderstorms. So sea level rise and sea level, um, not sorry, sea level rise, sea level rise as well as the actual temperature of the water, the sea surface temperatures really drives a lot of that stuff um, globally. So all, all of these hazards are tied together in one way or another. So Nick, I noticed there are four other hot spots that show up that are interesting. I didn't know that Florida was that tornado prone. Uh, I mean, it, it's just as bad as some of the other areas. 
And then just north of that looks like North Carolina has a, a hot spot up there. And then up around Vermont, uh, inexplicably. Yeah, Vermont. what's what's that little is that like is that one event or I mean it can't be one event, it has to be multiple events, but what so what what's going up up there in the northeast there? A lot of the same mechanisms that help create a lot of the ingredients, you know, sea surface or it's, moisture is one of them, heat is another one, but you get a lot of activity wind-wise off of mountains. And, you know, as you know, we're in the mid-latitudes, so the wind is classically going from west to east. And so you can see there, like, if you look at the plains, you see a very divided line on the Rocky Mountain front where you get those storms. That's called lee side cyclogenesis. It helps to kick off thunderstorms. It's a big term, but we don't really need to worry about the specifics. But it's good to know that where there's lots of available moisture and where you can get on the lee side of mountains, you tend to have more thunderstorms kick off. And like I said, not that it's not capable in the, in the mountains, but when you get to the east side of them, especially, it helps to really make the wind spin, if for lack of a better way to describe it. And so you do end up getting those. That more than likely up there is not a true hot spot per se. It's just that you are coming out of the mountains and they probably did have a series of events at a given time that really kind of elevated the risk. Um, but again, risk is high, uh, you know, there as well as Florida because you've got that available moisture. Um, they're not as well known for tornadoes, right? You know, you need some, you need like an excess of all of the ingredients to really get something that's super strong like a tornado or hurricanes. Um, but it, you know, the risk is definitely still there. Um, Florida is an interesting one people don't think about a lot, though, because you know, everybody thinks about hurricanes, but any given hurricane has tornadoes that come off of it as well. So um, everybody knows, you know, it's not quite like a Hawaiian pineapple shower, like you get a heavy shower every single day while you're there, but you get a lot, a lot of heavy thunderstorms in Florida. You just, you know, it's kind of natural that that, that would have some sort of elevated risk for, for tornadoes. And that's, I mean, down there, it's mostly all driven by just so, so much heat. You know, anytime you step outside and you're sweating before you start to take your first steps, there's probably a risk of thunderstorms. Mm -hmm. yeah, I could break a sweat reading a book. I lived in Key West for a while and uh, I, it, was, it was kind of brutal. Uh, I know, so what other, uh, is that around Tucson, Arizona, somewhere like that, where there's, um, there's, that would be that would, that would be Maricopa County, I believe, specifically. And those out there, it has to do with the monsoon um, systems that come through every once in a great while. So you do you do end up getting the random thunderstorms uh, down there. Um, but you know, even out here in Northwest Oregon, we hear of you know the random thunderstorm that hits somewhere, you know, on the coast randomly. You know, in August, uh, it can happen. We're still at extremely low risk in the Northwest, as you can tell from the map, but. Yeah. It can happen. So anywhere you get those, you know, those seasonal periods of lots of thunderstorms, lots of rain, you can you can get those sort of events, even in Arizona. So Nick, I see a lot of maps that you have up there. Can you briefly touch on all those other events so we yeah. can see those? Mm -hmm. Sure can. We'll take a look at the first map. We talked a little bit about earthquakes and the risk of earthquakes. This map probably won't be very surprising to a lot of people. You know, the West Coast is entirely elevated. What a lot of people don't know, though, is that there's elevated risk across the heartland of the country. Um, there is a particular bullseye that people probably might be familiar with, the New Madrid Fault, which is in and around the area of where Missouri, Arkansas, Tennessee, Kentucky all kind of come together. 
Um, I actually had stories growing up as a kid in Mississippi and Indiana about people experiencing um, things, you know, with regard to that particular fault line. So, but this, you know, this map should really not be too, too surprising for the most part. Always your elevated risk on the West Coast. You're not totally immune to it other places. As a matter of fact, I was in college in Maryland. There was a, an earthquake. This was about 10 years ago, uh, just outside of Washington, D.C., quite randomly. And people, even as far away as two and a half hours where I was, could, could feel it. Um, again, pretty random. So not really elevating your risk for the most part. Interesting. Even Hawaii um, yep. is, has a pretty high risk. Yeah, Hawaii is a classic hot spot. It's not on the, the classic Pacific Ring of Fire, but any place that's a hot spot like that, um, which Hawaii, it's, that's actually the largest, mount, the largest, tallest mountain chain on Earth. Um, you just don't know it because most of it's below sea level. Mm. Um, but yeah, th that's a great hot spot. You'd have that elevated risk in Iceland, which is the same type of situation. What's that? What's that? What's the northernmost kind of little islands in Hawaii that that are kind of that? that looks like, like Kauai. Have, Kauai. They've avoided kind of because they're blue, so right. they've avoided like. So what's like interesting? Of, well, yeah. What's interesting about the perspective of risk there in a hot spot is that as the Earth's crust moves around, the hot spot actually moves, and so. You see that gradient in the Hawaiian Islands because as that archipelago goes to the northwest, those are the that's those are the old locations of the hotspot. A hotspot's moving; it created those islands from northwest to southeast, and so the Big Island is the youngest of all of those, actually. Um, oh. And the far, I mean, if you were alive two or ten or twenty million years from now, you would see that that chain just keeps dragging off to the southeast mm. and the big island would no longer be the highest risk place. Although frankly, I assume you could probably feel any sort of earthquake out there on really just about any of those islands, you know, if it is as close as the big island might be. But yeah, that's that's the way it works. The, the hot spot moves and it creates new islands and the old ones kind of fizzle out uh, from a risk perspective and also from a volcanic perspective. Wow. Great. Thanks, Nick. And so what else would you have as far as the maps you've got to share? Sure. Yeah, we can take a look at some uh, interesting maps. I want to show you the flood risk map to show that it's so random, right? There's not really any place where you're specifically safe from a flood unless, you know, you, you got to be really thinking on the local scale about that. You can't say, I'm going to move to Wyoming because it doesn't rain much and therefore you're, you know, safe from a flood. The idea is you want to be away from any sort of rising water. So you don't want to live in floodplains or places where that are prone to flooding. That happens everywhere. It's pretty ubiquitous. There are some places, however, that are far, far more prone to it. So it shouldn't be surprising on this map to see that the south coast of Louisiana and Mississippi are extremely flood prone, uh, as we well know from Katrina, uh, Hurricane Katrina. Um, that's just kind of the way it is down there. You know, it's extremely flat. Um, New Orleans is actually a little bit below sea level. It's common for places down there to be right on sea level, and it's supposed to flood. It just does. It's also the mouth of the Mississippi River area, and just kind of what happens. And then North Dakota looks like uh, it's a hot spot up there. Um, I forget what's right. what, what are the towns. Um, is a well, that's probably Fargo, um, right. Fargo area, which would be. I do not remember off the top of my head the river that's there, but 
Um, yeah, that, but there's probably, you know, a fairly routine type of flooding, a lot like the kind of flooding you would see along the main stem of the Mississippi or the Missouri River. Um, they're, they're pretty big, wide, flat rivers that flow through that part of the country. So it wouldn't surprise me if there have been a number of events in a particularly flood-prone area around Fargo. Gotcha. So are these FEMA-designated uh, flood events? Uh, is that how they measured them? Yes. Yeah, these, these are actual flood events that occurred. It gives you a spot location for the flood. And yeah, we just kind of analyze this on, to give us a, a county-level risk score. But again, the takeaway here is that aside from these particular areas that are hot spots, it's pretty, there really isn't much of a pattern to discern. You know, you have to be thinking on a lot local, a lot more local scale to, to escape floods. Oh, I bet. Um, and then there's a town, uh, is it Columbia, Endicott? city, I believe, uh, in Maryland, that have had some terrible floods that have just swept through the uh, streets, I think. Ellicott City, yes. Ellicott, thank you. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah, that's, that, I, I was actually in college in Maryland at the time that that event, the last event, I should say, occurred there. And um, that's another case where it's a lot of localized flooding, flash flooding through streams there. Don't, I think it was maybe the Patuxent River, if I'm not mistaken. I can't remember exactly off the top of my head, but um, not a main stem, huge river event. That was a very localized kind of kind of flooding event. But that happens everywhere. That's it's just kind of the way it goes. So you have to be really careful anywhere you live that you're not in a flood area. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very good. Now the op the opposite of a flood would be a drought score, which does really have some significant regional patterns. And if you're looking at this map here, you can see that the whole Western U.S., you know, kind of makes sense, has a drought score that is much higher. You're obviously far more at risk when you're already living in a more arid place. Um, the Midwest is pretty commonly, commonly known for getting relatively consistent rain throughout the year. They don't really have any, you know, classic dry season or wet season stuff happening there. Actually, I grew up um, in Muncie, Indiana, as I've mentioned, and they get almost consistently about four inches of rain every single month, regardless of the month, which is pretty pretty amazing when you consider um, drought. So if you're concerned about drought, the Midwest is maybe not the worst place to be because you do get relatively consistent rain. And um, again, drought is all about inconsistency. So Nick, one of the things I've been reading about uh, on drought is that the dams... Um, on Lake P Lake Mead and Lake Powell are going to stop producing power at some point because they don't have enough water there mm -hmm. within the next few years. If it, if conditions don't change, is that true for a lot of the West and other places like, like Powell and Lake Mead? I would be worried about that. Yes, because um, we put, we put reservoirs in really terrible places is what we do. Um, Lake Mead and Lake Power are great examples of that. The last thing you want to do is impound water in a desert, which lets like 30% of it evaporate before you can even use it. So there's that. And then on top of that, it's the Great Basin, which doesn't, like the river flows through a lot of areas where there's just not consistently a lot of rain. And we have basically just sort of taken over all of the Colorado River to a point to where so much of it is diverted out of the main stem that on most years, it doesn't actually flow out to the Gulf of California. So it doesn't even make it to the ocean most years, unless you get an absurdly high amount of rain on any given year. 
So the last thing you want to do is put a, you know, a lake in a place where most of it can evaporate off. When you're diverting it, you use aqueducts and channels. So it's just floating across the landscape. Again, probably letting another 30% of that just evaporate off before it gets to where it needs to go. And I don't know if anybody has been, you know, to LA, but it's not exactly next door to Las Vegas. You're diverting a ton of water from the Colorado River to feed all of the agriculture in central California, and you're sending all the water to LA from the Owens River Valley, which is in the Sierras, which is also subject to drought conditions. And now we're just in like a 40-year-long drought. So it's just consistent insult to injury kind of stuff happening. We probably need a better method method than that, but anywhere you try to impound water in a place that's going to dry up, if it's you know if you go through that period of drought, it doesn't take very long. We can be smarter about it. That's that's I guess the the moral of the story. But yeah, I, I would Thanks. say that that a lot of other basins in the West are should be about as concerned. That one is there's so much water diverted from it though. That's almost like an outlier example, but that happens on a smaller scale just about everywhere else out west too. Yeah, I've been I've been hearing stories about the Klamath Basin that's been uh, been covered a lot in the news here locally in Oregon and stuff. So. Southern Oregon, right, Bertrand? Yeah. 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 Yep. That's that's another one that the it, this year, as of the last few weeks in Western Oregon, we've actually had a lot of water and. A lot of people are excited because a lot of water basins are doing quite well. The one that's not getting any of this precipitation is the Klamath Basin. So they're still half of normal, even though I'm two and a half hours away from there where I stand right now and we're 125% of normal. Uh, it's just kind of a weird thing. But again, it, that's a dry place, you know, and they draw a lot of water out of that, out of that, uh, that system period for agriculture. Um, and it's a it's a hard fight. There's a lot of a lot of people that care about that water and need that water. So it's you're going to hear a lot about that in the news, I imagine, over the next 20 years. There's been a lot of people trying to remove dams on that um, legally and not legally to try to get water out of it. So that's that's going to be an interesting fight. You know, this the the snow level uh, pack in the mountains is has a lot to do with the drought as well because over the over the years as temperatures have risen a good example is, is the sierras in california they used to have tons of snow i remember as a kid we would drive from montana down to california and we would see a 20 foot snowpack by the side of the road you would never see that in today's world ever nope Nope. No, I, I agree. Actually, my, my dad and my mom grew up in California and at some point worked in and around Tahoe when they were in their young early 20s. And I used to hear stories from my dad about how he would get off work, take a nap, and two hours later, he'd wake up and there's three new feet of snow on the ground and he had no idea what happened. It just happened like lightning fast. And yeah, it's been a long, long time since they've really had a lot of storms like that. But again, you know, I mean, people talk about California being out of water, it's true because it really does rely on that snowpack, as you say, and the drought is significantly bad in the Southwest. So there's not a lot you can do if, if the snow doesn't fall and you're, you're just in trouble. Well, you know, bringing it back to best places, looking forward, some of the best places might be that we're seeing are things like um, uh, Michigan, uh, 
Wisconsin. Uh, the um, uh, it looks like Buffalo might get the last laugh on, on being instead of a punchline to a joke or the name of uh, chicken wings. Uh, maybe it's going to be a great place to live um, over on the uh, bordering the Great Lakes. Yeah, no kidding, right? I mean, natural air conditioner, always there, ready for you in those lakes. Absolutely. They have their own environmental issues, but from a climate standpoint, I mean, yeah, this is probably a good time to be thinking maybe the, the upper Midwest isn't necessarily a bad thing. Now, part, part of the, the thing behind climate change is not that everything's warming, but it's just erratic. Um, things are more extreme. Whatever is supposed to happen is more extreme, and that includes the cold snaps you'd get in the winter there. So it may not be as consistently cold, like it's always around 20 degrees and you just freeze all winter long there. You know, you might pop up to 50 degrees on any given day, but then next week it's 30 below zero because things are just a little more erratic. You're still kind of making up that average though, right? But you're, yeah. it's just, it's happening in a really erratic way. It's, so yeah, right. yeah, you can nobody, have nobody will escape the, the erratic nature of all of that. Everywhere is going to have some kind of an effect. Yeah. You know, you can have a hundred inches one year, you can have zero inches the next year, and it still averages out to a nice, well, here in Oregon, uh, in the Portland area, we had uh, the driest April on record last year. This year, we had the wettest April on record. So two right. extremes. Um, but, you know, one thing I wanted that occurs to me, uh, uh, Hemingway uh, had a book, I think The Sun Also Rises, and the character, one of the characters says, uh, says how do you go bankrupt? And he said, two ways, gradually, then suddenly. And I'm thinking, this is like climate change. What we have is the gradually, 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 we sort of don't notice, and then all of a sudden, bang, it's unavoidable, and big changes have to be made. Maybe like all of a sudden, the dams, is, like Al mentioned, are running out of power. They're running out of water, and it just is not livable any, there anymore. There just isn't the infrastructure. These things are happening gradually in front of our eyes, and then suddenly things are going to happen, just like sea level rise in Florida or in South Carolina, uh, where they're trying hard to fight back the ocean. Things are happening gradually, and then suddenly they're in our face. No, I mean, that's exactly true. It's it's one of those to boil a frog type analogies thing, right? It's, it's, right. it's, an, inter it's an interesting concept. I, I think the, the problem is not that things are changing so quickly. It's just that our stuff is in the way. Like we, we, we built the world and you know the states for whatever the conditions were like a long, long time ago, right? Miami is sitting at like two feet above sea level or one foot above sea level or just on sea level for all intensive purposes. And, you know, if, if there's two feet of sea level rise, that, that you probably lose like 40% of land area in South Florida. I mean, it's just our stuff that we built is in the way and we can ignore it or we can move our stuff. I, you know, that's just what it is. Yeah. Well, just to, um, remind people that Florida is on the continental shelf. It's part of the continental shelf. It's just a matter of good fortune that it's a few hundred feet. In fact, what's the highest, the highest natural point in Florida is what, a hundred feet high? It's, or it's called, it's called Sunflower Hill. Yeah. It's just a few hundred feet high and it's, 
you know, I mean, we joked around in Indiana about the the highest point being the on ramp to the interstate. It's one of those types of <laughs> types of analogies, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, not high. So um, let's talk about Al. Do you have any more facts or thoughts you want to go ahead and share? I know you've been. Yeah. Um, well, there's a couple of thoughts. You know, we were talking a lot about drought. Uh, just two things. This is kind of a a documentary that I watched how they have a reservoir north of LA there. They put these big giant black balls in the reservoir to prevent um, the water from dissipating into the atmosphere. And then um, a little known fact about LA is that they recycle their water there. So people drink what's called gray water, which, so this is really gross, but people should know that when you flush a toilet, you know, all the, the water goes down into the system, it gets recycled, and then it comes back out your tap. So, you know, they've been doing a lot of things to conserve water down there as well. Um, but, you know, switching to a um, just climate change in general, um, we have a lot of things going on besides the temperature risings. The oceans are warming, which is also affecting the acidification of the ocean. I, I know, Bert, you talked a little bit about that um, earlier off camera. If you want to mention. Yeah, I, I mentioned in specifically some of the things, some of the good things that are happening. And, and you know, we, we think about the climate, we think about everything, we think, oh, this is so much what could it, it's it's too much to do anything maybe we should like just ignore it uh i know that's a, a tendency when things are, are like too big to handle but things we can make a change and I, I pointed to a couple of things as evidence number one talking about la california clamped down on air pollution on auto pollution and uh the automakers didn't like it and they fought it but the state said hey the largest state in the union, we're going to go ahead and go with this. So they went ahead and set the standards for the whole rest of the U.S. And L.A. is much more livable than it was before. They had this terrible smog back in the 70s um, and maybe part of the 80s. And things gradually got better. And it's air pollution from that many people and that much industry is still bad. But it's so much better than it was. And it's so much healthier that the rate of illnesses have gone down considerably. They're making a big change, and the changes they made in California actually have helped the rest of the country and maybe the world as well. The other thing is um, there were strong um, environmental uh, uh, restrictions on the pollution from factories in the Northeast. And again, these were fought, but the you look at a map of the acid rain uh, that was all over the Northeast in the 1970s and 80s, that has virtually been eliminated uh, thanks to the controls that they put on. So we can make changes, um, and but there's so much left to do. And I just wanted to say that, you know, we can, it's, 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 it's possible to make a positive change. So, uh, you know, we shouldn't... Um, shouldn't abandon that. Yeah, it's easy to feel hopeless, I think, when you, you get constant bad news about how things are getting worse. And <clears throat> even they say that if we made all the changes, 
you know, you hear some pretty, some pretty doom, doomsday type stuff. Like if we made all the changes that we had to make, we still wouldn't be able to prevent every, all the bad things from happening. And maybe that's true, but it is good to, to realize that, you know, we, if we buckle down and, and make some sacrifices, we can make a positive change. Yeah. Well, and you know, I, I, I have this one favorite saying of mine, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago or 40 years ago or whatever, but the next best time to plant a tree is today. So you know, we should have done things a long time ago, but we can start doing it now. Let's go ahead and sort of wrap this up and talk about what are the best places we think maybe going forward. You know, we have earthquakes on the West Coast and we got hurricanes and, and wildfires now are on the West Coast and wildfires can be anywhere, even in Florida, the grasslands, uh, any place there is vegetation. And as things warm up and as things dry out, wildfires are going to be a bigger deal and people are moving out of the cities into places that are um, more exposed to wildfires. So what, what do we think guys, what do you think maybe are the, are the some of the best places uh, to uh, sort of weather, uh, no pun intended, uh, the, the climate change that's coming? Well, one, one of the things I'm seeing as a trend is that, as the jet stream moves farther north, you know, we're, we're seeing the south dry up. We're seeing a lot of weather events. So the two best places I'm seeing are the northwest and the northeast as two great spots going forward. Um, anyone else want to comment on that? Or? Oh, that, that sounds exactly right. You're, you're right on, on point there, Al. I mean, you could be a slightly more nuanced perhaps and say, pick your your least favorite hazard and just move as far away as possible from it. But if you're thinking like trying to cover as many as possible, move a little farther North. You're probably going to be a little bit happier. I mean, as long as you don't mind the, the winters anyway. Yeah, I would, I would yeah. oh, go ahead. I for one welcome our 51st state of Canada. And I think that that might be a one. <laughs> 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 they might be offended by that, but you know. <laughs> I think drought and wildfire kind of make me some of the most worried uh, as far as seeing like stuff like even in te Texas and any, anywhere that's like dry and arid um, and droughts and wildfires make me nervous of, of, the, of all the changes that are happening right now. And actually, the wildfires did reach us here in Portland. So I, I was going to agree with with the folks who said the Northwest is good. Um, but I would still say the Northwest, even though two years ago when we had the wildfires that happened in California and, and Southern Oregon, the, the effects were, I mean, I could, we couldn't go outside uh, for a couple of days and you can still see pictures. Uh, I was down in my apartment here and in downtown Portland and we couldn't, I couldn't leave um, my apartment for two or three days because of the smoke. So that notwithstanding, I still would think that the Northwest would be pretty uh, safe from some of those uh, more intense uh, arid kind of um, effects being drought and, and wildfire. So, you know, that, that those fire events, um, is it not the summer it was two summers ago? It was apocalyptic because it was, it was like the sun was dark. You couldn't, you couldn't go outside. It was like, it felt like the world was ending, you know, yeah. but in, um, in the Portland Metro area where most of us are, it, 
the whole area was surrounded by wildfire. And, yep. you know, at some point it's bound to happen here shortly again. It could be this summer or next. You just don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe moving it like, like Nick said, maybe moving a little bit more North, even if you're in, in Portland and maybe even moving more North into Washington state um, because Earthquakes, I, I did want to say that there is seismophobia. Seismophobia is a thing. It's a fear of earthquakes, and it's often kind of an irrational fear of earthquakes. But we know that earthquakes are scary to people, and as from our survey and also from stuff like um, stuff like the disaster movies that Hollywood puts out, it, it's, a, it's a thing that scares people uh, because earthquakes happen suddenly. They can't be tracked. Like, you know, Nick was talking about being a storm tracker, storm chaser, and well, we can almost kind of predict or at least notice when they're happening and give people some kind of warning as far as that stuff, whereas earthquakes strike quickly. But if you look at the uh, facts, um, earthquakes have only been responsible responsible for about 70 deaths, um, let's see, since um, 1990. So from 1990 to 2017, only about 70 deaths um, were attributable to earthquakes, whereas we've got over 3,000 that are um, attributable to tropical cyclones, including hurricanes. So if you're already out of that, we talked about the cyclone and the tornado alley and stuff like that and how those are changing. If you're already out of that zone, then you would be, and then you, and then if you can avoid kind of the California area, which is dry and arid these days and move, I guess you're just getting scooched up into the upper parts of the country like we talked about or the more northern parts. So, um, yeah, that's well, what I would say. 58 years ago, a few weeks ago, there was Good Friday. 58 years ago, I was in Kodiak, Alaska as a, as a kid, and we went through the second largest earthquake ever recorded, uh, I think in the Western Hemisphere or something like that. It was like a 9.3 or something. Uh, I lost some of my school uh, mates uh, in the tsunami, and um, we didn't know about tsunamis back then. I don't have seismophobia. I think they're very rare. Um, and, uh, you know, we talk here in the Northwest about the big one that's coming. Uh, I'm not concerned one might come, um, but I don't necessarily think it's going to be a huge one. It could be smaller. It might not come, uh, for a long time for another hundred, 200 years, who knows, but I'll take my chances. Right. Yeah. Risk is... Oh, sorry. Risk is tough to assess, right? That that fear of the unknown is a pretty strong motivator, I think, for a lot of people. And, you know, movies, like, as you say, Bertrand, certainly don't help. You know, every movie you see has got the 10-pointer earthquake followed by the inevitable tsunami that's some 200-foot tall wave that just takes care of everybody. And, I mean, A, it doesn't really happen like that. Um, but B, it's, yeah, it's, you could... It could happen tomorrow. It could happen 25,000 years from now. Take your pick on your risk. It's, it's probably irrational on that one. Yeah. And one, 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 one thing I found in my research, which was really interesting, if, and Nick, I think you, you said that the, the uh, physical the geography, obviously physical geography, uh, the geography of the United States makes it particularly on a worldwide basis, particularly susceptible to cyclones and stuff like that. Um, one thing that is really different or really unique about the world is that India in particular, whatever it is in India, they get thousands of earthquakes every year. So if you look at the number of earthquakes per geographical area, 
I mean, they get literally thousands of earthquakes every year, and that dwarfs other areas of the world. So on a global scale, the United States is not a particularly earthquake-prone um, uh, place, basically. Mm-hmm. That's good to know. Good to know. Yep. Great. Anything else you guys want to cover before we wrap it up? Great talk. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, stay safe out there. And, um, you know, wherever you are, I hope you're having a a good uh, year coming up. I hope it's been good for you. And uh, I hope that you're safe. Uh, These are wild times with the climate change, the natural hazards, the pandemic. Uh, boy, we're sure going through so much, but I hope your place is the best place for you. And if not, come to bestplaces.net and we'll help you find a place that's even better than the place you're at now. So uh, from uh, Al, Bertrand, Nick, and myself, Bert Sperling, thanks for joining us at Best Places. And uh, we'll go ahead and see you on another podcast and stop by bestplaces.net to see what we're doing. So see you later.